It's a Dungeons and Dragons podcast that'll really make you think. We're spicing up the rules, mashing up the homebrews, and stirring up the debates. Add a little touch of our own, and you have Chef Bogue and the Pirate Captain's Recipes for Everything. With your host, the Pirate Captain. It's not because I took on an entire ship by myself and walked away unscathed just off good looks alone. Chef Bolg. I have in my rules for the original OG. Don't be a dick. And Loke the Bard. Lock the Bard. Bans all bards from his campaign. (laughs) That wouldn't go over very well. And without further ado, here are your hosts. Well, that'd be right. We're back for another great episode. It is I, the Pirate Captain, along with me bestest buddies, Chef Bogue. Hi, everybody. And Loke the Bard. Hey, how's it going, everyone? All right. We've got a great episode coming up for you. This is one we have been teasing for the last couple months uh, since Loke the Bard reached out, got this interview for us, and we're going to get to him here in a second. I just want to make sure I'm plugging out all the right stuff because we've got a lot coming up. We got the Facebook page that you guys should all be going out to check out. It's Chef Bog and the Pirate Captain. Uh, you find if you Google that on Facebook, it's the first thing that actually pulls up. We have our email. Make sure you email us bogandpc at gmail.com. You that's the be- one of the best ways to get in touch with us. We all read the emails. We've all been going back and forth with those, so we are excited to have you guys. And then one more thing, Phoenix Emporium. Obviously, we had Shane in here last week, and he is the co-owner of Phoenix Emporium, and they have a big D&D event coming up on the 19th. And I'm not going to tell you who, but there's going to be a couple of us that are going to be there. Come by, hang out with us, get to meet us. We know a lot of listeners are actually coming from Phoenix Emporium now because of Shane it did so well. But that's why I want to make sure that we get that out. Well, now it's time to the big event. This is, like I said, I've been teasing this thing for the last month. I've been excited about this guest. He is a Awesome, awesome writer. I've read, uh, I, I haven't read any of his actual books that I want to talk about, but I've read the paper, which is sparking this conversation. It's a hot topic right now, but I want to let him talk about it too. This is Professor Chris Ferguson of Stetson University. Uh, he is a very well renowned, I would say he's pretty well renowned within the country because he has work that's been cited by the Supreme Court. He's done, he's done research on media from video games to social media to 13 Reasons Why. In fact, he's a psychology professor here at Stetson University. I want to make sure we get that out. And he has done something that he has did a, a recent research topic on it that kind of falls into what we are talking about right now. And it's kind of on, are orcs racist? And I we're going to get into our, our, our own personal beliefs in that. We're going to talk about that. But I want to introduce to you, Professor Chris Ferguson, how are you doing? Hey guys, yeah, I'm doing really good today. Thanks for having me on. No, we appreciate you coming on with us, man. It's Absolutely. Uh, this has been this is a pretty big one. You're like our first major guest. Most of the people that we've had in right now are people that we know. They've done well. We've had a we've had a published author, a business owner, but we've never had somebody of your caliber, somebody who's had work cited by the Supreme Court, who's got a couple of books out. You've got Moral Combat: Why the War on Video Games is Wrong. And then how madness shaped history, which you know we're probably going to try and tag in on a little bit of those here in a little bit, because I know video. A lot of people think that video games incite violence, which is not true, uh, but it's. I could see somebody making the same argument about D and D. But you're also an avid D and D player as well, from what I've read on some of your bios. Yeah, absolutely. I've been playing since uh, first edition. Uh, which uh, gives you a sense of how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I wasn't going to say back that. early eighties. <laughs> oh man. So uh, before, usually, and 
usually we ask people when the when they're more of our fr- like not somebody as well known as you because we want to make sure your name is getting out there that when people listen to this podcast they go oh that's Chris Ferguson not you know the pirate captain or something we usually ask them you know what their favorite character race class is and I want to give you that same opportunity what is your uh, favorite character that you've ever played in your in your extensive time of playing who who was it what did they do oh good that's a good that's a really really good question yeah sure so. Uh, probably my favorite character that I ever played uh, goes all the way back to uh, first edition. Um, although I resurrected her in fifth edition with a, uh, a new group that I've been playing with for about a decade now, a decade and a half. Uh, but uh, way back in first edition, they they came out with in Dragon Magazine. I still remember it was issue number one fourteen, and they came out with this witch uh, class. Uh, I think it was supposed to be an NPC class, but everybody played it anyway. Um, and it was awesome. And so I played this witch character, which was, you know, I think now it's more common for, you see more, you know, more men playing as female characters, but back then it was kind of weird. Um, or it was perceived as weird, I think a little bit, but, uh, I was really big into Stevie Nicks at the time. And, you know, so I think that probably had some influence, um, on this character, but, uh, really enjoyed playing it. It was a really cool class. Um, they have updates to it on uh, DM's guild now. So even though it's not official, you can still find fifth edition, which, uh, classes and, uh, Managed a player again, had a lot of fun. She survived both times, uh, so <laughs> there must be some luck there. It was a real cool, uh, a real cool experience. Well, you've got a better survival ratio than I do. I I, I played a campaign where I where I was dying every other no every, every episode week. every, every week. episode I was dying. <laughs> so, are you like are you an active member on the DMs Guild? Do you actively promote or produce any content on the DMs Guild? Yeah, I've got a couple things on there. You know, nothing that's, uh, I can't claim to be a bestseller. I'm not about to open the next, uh, you know, uh, Piazzo or anything of that. So, Paizo, whatever, how they really ah, call who knows. Uh, you know. <laughs> uh, so, but yeah, I got a couple things on there that, uh, you know, I think every year I make a couple hundred bucks from uh, selling stuff, which I guess isn't too bad. That's so, not, not bad um, at all. Yeah, yeah. Considering so the most I've made, a lot of work dollar. to get a couple hundred bucks, but yeah, it's, it's cool. Well, we appreciate getting into that a little bit. It definitely lets people see who you are, that you're more than just a professor writing about the topic, that you're an active member of playing in this game, which is going to help people understand uh, the to- the main topic for today and the ep- the title of this episode, Are Orcs Racist? Now, my personal belief, no. I don't think orcs are racist. There's no one you can... Uh, I think that they were a creature that's... They've changed over time. We've seen in uh, previous cultures, and we talked to yet again about this during lunch, where they used to be more pig-like looking. Uh, Mm -hmm. And now they've changed and updated. And you've mentioned this, I think, in your article a couple spots. There was other areas that I was focused on. Uh, So go ahead and break down your article. Give the title that you want to call it, because I've got Our Orcs Races, Dungeons and Dragons, uh, Ethnocentrism, Anxiety, and the the Depiction of Evil Monsters. I got a Florida education, so... It's hard for me to talk. <laughs> yeah, well, this kind of came up, uh, you know, for maybe about two or three years ago. Uh, and probably some of this predates, you know, my being aware of it. But, uh, you know, I, I spotted some of these typical Twitter wars going on about Dungeons and Dragons where there were these really passionate debates uh, about whether, you know, the portrayal of evil monster races, and everybody talked about the orcs and sometimes drow um, as well, but whether these uh, monster races, because they were portrayed as inherently evil one way or another, um, you know, was that racist? And, and kind of the, the two arguments I kind of you know, d- distilled from that conversation was one that either 
people who are playing Dungeons and Dragons and kind of experience this sort of racial essentialism, if you will, with drow and orcs, that they would then take that and apply it to real life, you know, so that racism in D&D could kind of transfer to racism in real life. Um, or perhaps, if, even if that weren't the case, that there was this kind of a consensus among particular players of color that they were offended by these depictions of monsters, uh, that it reminded some people, you know, that works, reminded people of uh, different ethnic minorities in real life. And yeah, so these were, you know, kind of moralistic arguments. They were passionate and people get angry at each other on both sides, as people do on social media. Um, And but it it raises kind of these are empirical questions, too. I mean, these are kind of like science can try to answer some of these questions, both in terms of whether there is any kind of at least correlational relationship between D&D playing and racism in real life. Uh, or is it really true that there's this kind of like groundswell of activism among players of color, that this is really something a majority of players of color are concerned about? Um, and so I thought to try to at least provide you know, some answer for these questions. Of course, it's only one study, and I'd love to see more studies you know, tackle these kinds of issues. Right. Um, but the, uh, the gist of it was uh, you know, the, the, there didn't seem to be any correlation between playing Dungeons and Dragons and racist attitudes in real life. And, um, you know, and most people, whether they were players or not, or whether they were people of color or whether they were white, you know, did not appear to be offended by the sort of uh, standard depiction of orcs. Uh, and uh, I think it was like about a 10% of people were offended by it, but the vast majority were, were not. So this, I mean, I kind of interpret this as good news. I mean, I guess it sort of depends on which side of the argument you're on, whether you take this as good news or not. But there, I mean, the really good news is playing D&D doesn't seem to cause, or it doesn't seem to be related to racism in real life. And, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of arguments for changing D&D appear to be a minority you know, argument. That doesn't right. mean we should dismiss them. Um, but even most people of color don't seem to be terribly concerned about this issue of orcs or drow, you know, being presented as racist. No, it, it, looking at the data and the study size and stuff, and I'll let uh, I'm going to let Loke ask a question here in a second. But it it does correct. I think what it was like ten percent overall out of how many people did you uh, do the study over? It was three hundred and some. I forget the exact number, but it was over three hundred uh, people that were involved. Right, and so ten percent of those were actually said came out. That's uh, as in your study that we have right here said that you know yeah they believed orcs were racist. That's a minor. It's like what three like thirty people, if that. Yeah, it was interesting. The number changed a little bit. So what we did is uh, you know we asked this question kind of subtly at first. We asked if they found the orc to the description to be offensive. And you got about a 10% uh, response rate uh, in the affirmative for, for that. Later on, you know, I, I then gave them these kind of like distractor things, you know, sort of other things had nothing to do with the hypothesis, just kind of trying to keep people from hypothesis guessing. And then at the very end, I then asked them another set of more blunt questions. And at that point, I did ask them more bluntly, you know, do you find these orcs to be, you know, this description of orcs to be uh, racist? Uh, and then the number actually jumped from about 10% to about 33 34%, still a minority but an increase. And, right. and what I suspect happened there is that the the wording of the question matters. So I think what happens is for some people, and by the way, it wasn't really people of color that, you know, sort of <laughs> jumped in percentage. It was more women that than any other group that uh, sort of increased in uh, affirmative answers for, for racism. But And I think what's happening is people assume, well, if you're asking me if this thing is racist, it must be. Otherwise, why would you have asked? 
Right, um, right. You know, so I think there's that kind of weird impact that we're getting from uh, from some of the stuff. Because otherwise, those numbers don't really make a lot of sense. You know, so, most people don't find something to be racist, but not offensive. Quite, and, um, so, and, yeah. And here's a question for you on how on the people who did find it racist. How much experience did they have in the past playing D and D? Were they lifelong players? Were they, hey, I just picked this game up uh, yesterday? Yeah. Was that data like brought in? Because that could be something. Because we're we're seeing yeah. with Stranger Things and all these other nerd shows, Critical Role, that D and D is taking off. People are finding that the nerd culture that used to be used and abused, you weren't you weren't cool if you were yeah. a nerd. Now everybody thinks it's cool. So are these people that were lifelong players? You said yourself, you got first edition. Loke's a first edition player. I mean, we've all played it at some point, but you know, we all started. I, in fact, started with Pathfinder, a three point five. Was yeah. was that something that may have taken into effect that they've they may have only seen orcs from this generation and maybe not their long history? Right, that, that certainly is possible. In, in this study, the uh, you know, history with D and D playing was not a predictor of, of either uh, you know sort of a sense of offensiveness or uh, racism. With the racism question. Uh, it really was, again, women were more likely to endorse that than were men. And uh, also more aggressive people were, uh, what we call trait aggression, more aggressive people were more likely to endorse the racism question can you ex- than uh, other individuals, which is really interesting Can you explain? <laughs> in, in a way. It does seem weird. Can you explain what trait aggression is for somebody who's like a casual listener to that? Yeah, so trait aggression is basically it's a personality style where you just are more aggressive. As, it's just who you are, you know. So yeah, you're more likely to perceive other people's ambiguous behaviors as personal attacks. Uh, you're more likely to want to respond retributively, you know, to get back at them. Uh, you know, if someone insults you, you're more likely to want to hit them or something of that sort. So you tend to escalate quickly. Uh, in terms of using aggression to solve conflict. 90% of Twitter. Yeah, the Biff Tannins from Back (laughs) in the Future. (laughs) Uh, Very much overrepresented on Twitter, yes. It's crazy. It's something that wasn't even thought of. Like, if you... Do you have like a a roundabout time that you remember hearing this discussion being started? Were orcs racist? Because I, like... It's something I've only heard of in just a couple of recent years. Well, yeah, it's become very timely, too, with the changes that right. Wizard of the Coast is now announcing that they are going to be proceeding with. They're taking things that have made these these races unique and powerful in their own rights, and they're almost stripping it away because they don't want them to be yeah. perceived as bad. But I think that's that's as you as the storyteller. It goes on the DM. Like, if you're out there and you're telling the story— and the bad guy may not be the orcs. If you look at Harmon Quest, Dan Harmon's uh, show he did on VRV, he was a half-orc. It was a village of monsters that were good people, and it was actually the opposite. Some of, some of the more betraying characters were humans. They were bad people. Yeah, I, I think in terms of like the historical pattern of this, it mirrors, I think, a lot of other stuff that's happening in politics uh, over the last maybe six to eight years. Um, and I'm trying to choose my words carefully here a little bit. <laughs> no, I'm, not, I'm not really on either the left or the right uh, for the most part. I'm probably an Obama progressive is really kind of how I describe myself. But um, but I think there were a lot of changes well, I mean, they're on both sides. I mean, you know, both the right and the left became more extreme, I think, Absolutely. in various ways. And uh, and I think you have what uh, a journalist, Matt Inglesias, called the, the Great Awakening, I guess, that started in about 2014. So you kind of see this increasingly anxious, you know, focus on identity in, in, in big ways, you know, across politics, across journalism, across academia. 
and uh, and also in in role playing. You know, so I think that these discussions, which really accelerated, like I said, in the last probably three or four years, but there are threads that go back earlier. Um, I think kind of are mirroring these larger trends in society for people to take more and more extreme views of things, kind of like moral hygiene, you know, kind of moral grandstanding kind of views of things, and then get really angry at people that don't agree with them. Um, and again, it's not a left thing. Other people no, on there's... the right side do this as well, of course. Right. But uh, it's, you know, it's increasingly divorced from critical thinking and, and data and, and stuff like that. So it, it does worry me in a more general sense about where we're going with some of this stuff. Now, I'll go ahead, Luke. Have you seen any of the new leaked information for the new uh, Mordenkaiden's uh, Monsters of the Multiverse book that is supposed to replace the uh, Monster Manual and will be making vast changes to many of the races, including orcs, according to the leaked yeah. information we're seeing online at sites like Screen Rant. Uh, we're we're not yeah. on. We don't have the insider information, so we don't have a leaked copy for ourselves yet. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, nobody, nobody leaks anything to me either. So yeah. uh, <laughs> I haven't seen that. The last I heard was uh, I think somebody announced changes to uh, to the drow um, in uh, uh, Wizards of the Coast. You know, where I think they're going to try to sort of nuance drow society quite a bit more than historically been true. Uh, I don't know if I've heard a lot about orcs necessarily, mm-hmm. and of course. You know, on the other hand, this Paizo sort of famously is, is you know, the stories kind of go back and forth a little bit about exactly what they're doing. But, you know, the, the gist of it seems to be they're either partly or fully removing slavery as a topic um, from the their, you know, their main Pathfinder setting. So there have been a few changes in that uh, direction. I haven't heard very specifically about, you know, what they're doing with this, uh, you know, revised Monster oh. Manual. Uh, of course, Candlekeep Mysteries was another book that, Created some controversy uh, because of the, uh, yeah, the ostensible wheelchair accessible dungeon and the, you know, the <laughs> relatively high number of non-binary NPCs and so on and so forth. But these, these are like, and I get in the more published manuals and stuff like that that you know people want that, but that's you as a, it's you as a DM that gives that uh, that life. These are, and we've said this in the past on our on our podcast that. The the guides they're just that they're guides. They're nothing in these things are written in stones. How many times have you been a, been a DM and you said, okay, I want these guys to go forward, and they just take a hard left turn and go nowhere mm-hmm. where you want them to go? So I, I trying to adjust the writings instead of just you know address, address addressing the player bases, I think is where we're missing the issue here on this. Yeah, I think the trick is you know of course people on both sides of the argument will kind of point out, well, you know, you can ignore the rules, you know, and play your own game the way you want to. But, you know, of course, that's an, that's an argument that cuts both directions, too. I mean, you can leave things the way they are and still change your game how you want it to be, too. Um, you know, and I think what's happening is, is, you know, same as some of the stuff we're seeing with, you know, book bannings in schools and, you know, the, the deplatforming of Joe Rogan or whatever, you know, these other issues are. It's really people are trying to control messaging and, uh, people have this sense, I think, that you know, if you read something, that your attitudes towards the world are going to radically change simply from being exposed to some sort of writing, um, and they really want to control messaging. So I think what we have here is, you know, again, these two sides, the traditionalists and the progressives, are really kind of trying to control this kind of narrative uh, through role playing. Um, and, uh, you know, they kind of say, well, if you don't like the way we're going to do it, you can play it how you want to. But then they kind of, you know, I, I sort of watched like the, the resurgent TSR 
uh, which seemed to last not very long, um, you know, right. who were sort of ostensibly anti-woke and how people kind of went right after that to destroy them on Twitter. Uh, yeah, so there's some insincerity, I think, to this idea. Well, you can just play the game how you want to because they'll just go after whatever other yeah. alternative platform there is to play it that way. Um, right. But I think it really comes down to, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's trying to control messaging, you know, so it's not necessarily about making the game funner, um, but it's really about, you know, people's moral universes. And unfortunately, if you end up with two groups that have very set views of what something should look like, it can be very difficult to compromise um, and figure out some way forward. Yeah, it's something again. Well, and you were saying earlier about that they're removing things like slavery and, and you know, things that may be seen as offensive. Uh, how do you make a bad guy bad if they're not allowed to do bad things? Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, well, what's also unclear is whether any of this is actually helpful. I, I feel people sometimes say, well, what's the harm, you know, in sort of making these changes? And, uh, you know, it's, you know, Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt, you know, wrote this book about, they call it the coddling of the American mind. But, you know, I think they make some fair, fair points, you know, that, we're kind of bubble wrapping everything. Um, and this, we have this sense of people, if they're exposed to something noxious, that it's going, they're so fragile, they'll, they'll break. And, uh, and I'm not sure that that is a healthy way of, you know, addressing these sorts of issues. I mean, you know, anxiety and depression are increasing in our society as we're doing these sorts of things. And that's correlational. I can't say that's definitively causal uh, right. necessarily. Um, but I'm not sure that these trends towards what they call safetyism, you know, are necessarily, you know, good because, you know, in, in Pathfinder, slavery was an evil thing. And, you know, the, the idea was the PCs were supposed to fight it. And, you know, there were, were rules in the book saying that PCs PC should not own slaves, you know, so it was very clearly an evil uh, sort of thing. And what? so I don't know that if we're, we're like removing the topic uh, from these games you know, we were supposed to talk about slavery 10 years ago. I mean, that, now we're sort of like removing it entirely because people are too, you know, fragile to discuss the topic. I'm not sure that that's really healthy. I, mean, I, I don't know that that's helping the audience in the way that even the makers of these products think it's going to be helpful. Right. I, I mean, because if you think about it, you know, every even slave traders, let's go back and we're going to talk about some a little bit of history with this, you know. People selling slaves didn't feel that they were doing anything bad because their cultural norms, that was what it was. So are they lawful evil? Are they lawful good? You know, what is what yeah. this a lot? Because they've removed alignments uh, in a certain editions, I believe, not like any it, here in the 5e uh, editions. But what, um, well, how do you feel about that? Because we're going to get into another topic you were kind of talking about on like anxiety and depression. That's actually something uh, Bold wanted to bring up is using D&D. To kind of help cope with some of this stuff, but if we're we're making it softer on these guys, are we really helping people? That a great tool to help it's help people overcome, uh, you know, how what's the word I'm looking for? Shyness and issues like that. It's yeah. brought a lot of people out. Uh, but yeah. I just want to know how that you know if we're not addressing if we're not addressing slavery in this form, how are we going to be able to do it? Because just because you're a slave trader doesn't mean you're a bad person. You that may be your Monday nine to five job. And it's just a game. For those of you who are listening yeah. to the podcast, it's just a game. We're talking about it in the game. We're not saying that any three of us, any four of us are out there tra dealing in slave trading right now. We're just using it as what our characters would do, which is how the game is supposed to be played. Yeah. Well, yeah, and like you said, it, this is something you're trying to build the villain. The villain's got to, I mean, if you want the villain to be a, an Adolf Hitler or, a, you know, 
a Joseph Stalin, somebody who's a real big bad who's doing bad things. Um, if if you're not allowed to have them do bad things, how do you? I, I'm, why would the good guys be fighting against them? Why are they trying to stop this evil empire that allows slavery from conquering their hometown? You know, why are they? Where is the motivation? Uh, you know, to to step up and do good things if. You know, if Al, if oh, is you know, then we got this good guy who's invading us. Everybody likes him. It's almost like <laughs> we're given like parking tickets, and we're like, ah, you know, he's just you know a little bit parked over to the yeah. left. So I, yeah, I, it's I, I agree with I, I agree with your point that you know we are definitely like kind of like softening up, and but it, and it's going to have a negative effect on this. And I also can definitely see you know Loke's point where how are we going to create villains if we're telling people that mm-hmm. they can't play. But they can't make these people yeah. bad. Yeah, no. Yeah. Had they called the D and D races species from the very beginning, so that they don't have that that word connotated with them, do you think that would have? I mean, do you think we'd be having this debate today? You know, if 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 yeah, because these are not humans; these are made up mythical creatures. Most of them from straight from mythology, history. You know. Um, they're they're not think you're you know you're not going to discriminate against Nork because you're probably never going to see an orc unless we find <laughs> some other planet that happens to look like orcs and we call them orcs. But even then, they're not really the orcs from D and D. They're space orcs, a different. You know? <laughs> um, so so you know, creating a, I mean a creature. Uh, how different does a creature need to be from humanity? To be allowed to be evil, like devils and demons, yeah. can they be evil? I mean, by by their very nature, that by what they are, can they be evil? That that brings back up the satanic panic thing because um, yeah. they, you pointed it out in your paper that they took them out of earlier editions, and then there was such a player outcry that they put them back in. Yeah, is, is that going to happen again now? Are people going to go? Well, where are our bad guys? We need bad guys. Yeah, and then put them back into the sixth edition or seventh, wherever they're going to go. Yeah, well, that'll be the trick. I mean, I'd be, I'd be very curious to to see that. I mean, I think what's happening now for Wizards of the Coast and Paizo, and of course a lot of other places as well, is that you know people are watching things happen on Twitter, and they're assuming that what's happening on Twitter is somehow reflective of you oh, know in this case the yeah. player base. You know um, that if you have a hundred very loud, angry people or a thousand very loud, angry people on Twitter, that, that this is a controversy that needs to be addressed directly rather than ignored and, and allowed to die, you know? Um, and so I think a lot of the decisions that these companies are making right now seem to be damage control type decisions in order to avoid social media controversies. The problem with that is, of course, I mean, there are two, really. One is that... Um, you know, only a tiny fraction of people are actually on Twitter, or at least are active on Twitter and uh, engaging in these kind of dog piles. Uh, so you really are catering to a relatively small portion of your audience. Now, you might hope, well, maybe the vast majority just don't care. You know, they don't care one way or the other. They'll, they'll just keep playing no matter what we do. And there's probably some truth to that. Um, you know, the other issue is I think that these companies are making the mistake is sort of a basic misunderstanding of psychology is what's happening is there's an outrage over thing A. And so the company kind of gives in, apologizes, the apology inevitably rejected. Uh, There's a demand for more changes. They give in. Now that that thing B 
So they give in to thing B, they apologize, the apology is rejected. You end up with this apology treadmill because what happens if you basically reward a behavior, right? If people have people get in, into a dog pile, they out, they're outraged about something, and you give them what they want, they don't become happy and go away. You you, you get more of that behavior. <laughs> so I think that's kind of like the basic mistake of what some of these companies are doing. Um, a few companies outside of role playing have figured this out, like Coinbase and, and Trader Joe's and a few other places, even Spotify to some extent. I figured out that you just kind of need to uh, ignore and sort of blow off these co- these uh, controversies, and they, that's what makes them go away. Right. Um, but giving in to them, you know, I don't I don't know what you know if if Wizards of the Coast is likely to give in to every single Twitter outrage over the next five to ten years as they create you know edition five point five or six whatever they're going to call it. Um, I I don't know <laughs> what what the game's going to look like. Yeah. Well. And, uh, for, for this Screen Rant article I was talking about earlier, we'll share it on our Facebook page so that the listeners can take a look at it. But uh, one of the things they're doing is the stat modifiers that every race gets out of the book, uh, they are changing the rules to where it doesn't matter what race you pick, you get a plus two to one stat and a plus one to one mm-hmm. stat that you choose regardless of what race you are or as, you, as part of your character creation. We're essentially... And helping- then I'm sorry. Well, and then then for the orcs, they're removing the traits of aggressiveness and menacing, and giving them an adrenaline rush, and then the uh, the relentless endurance like a half orc gets in their place. So So essentially, we're homogenizing characters. We're taking away what makes each race, and we see this in sports too. Let's let's take it that we have found that we look at certain sports, and there are people that there are certain. Uh, races and cultures that just do better in certain sports, and now we're homogenizing our races here in D and D. That no one, you're no longer special because you're an orc or you're a minotaur, because they're changing the way that minotaurs work. And then that, that to me is crazy. These are things that these races and creatures were very well known for, and we're just basically putting a blanket over them, saying now everybody is the same, and that it ruins these characters. Don't get me wrong; I'll be the first to admit I like the way Tasha's worked. Because Tasha's brought out this whole, hey, here's how you can create your own race. Kind of gave you a blanket little statement that made it easy. Like, because you can't obviously come up with everything. And I give Wizards of the Coast the credit of that. Like, obviously, they're not going to have uh, a half demon, half uh, half lizard person, or anything like that. But they gave you a way to do it. Now we're just kind of putting a blanket over them and going, now everybody gets to be special. Yeah, the incredible right, yeah. saying. I mean, everybody's special, then nobody is. Yeah, <laughs> you're unique, just like everybody else. Yeah. So, I, 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 I love this topic. You've been an expert. Where you guys are listening to Professor Chris Ferguson. He's over at Stetson University. He's our special guest. This is the episode that we have been uh, talking about for the last couple months, and we've been excited to have him. We're we're glad he's here. He's a psychology professor. He uh, focuses on video games. Uh, he's got a couple area of expertise from video, uh, media effects, violence, uh, aggression, sexy media, video games, virtual reality, uh, and the thin ideal media. And we wanted to get his uh, his hot takes. He had just wrote this article, which was what we've been talking about for the first half of this podcast, which are orcs racist. And he did a great study <laughs> on that. Uh, but I also want to kind of get into a little bit of psychology of the game because we were, we were going to talk about this topic a couple months ago. And then uh, when Loke brought up that, hey, you were interested in, in being on our show, we were like, oh, well, we need to save this topic for you being the psychology expert. And we're talking about the psychological effects of the game, like the benefits and the negatives. If there are any, what have you seen? What have you noticed? 
Uh, what brings it out? We talked about it just a bit earlier that, you know, those people who are shy usually tend to start becoming more outward going. The, can this game even be used? There's just a couple broad topics. You can pick your favorite and go from there. But can this game be used to help deal with past trauma? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Yeah, see, there, you know, unfortunately isn't tons and tons of research on Dungeons & Dragons, and probably the reason why is pretty clear. I mean, it just takes tons and tons of time. Um, and uh, But there have been a few studies, you know, going back decades in some cases, and most of that has been involved with using Dungeons & Dragons in therapy, you know. So it does appear that D&D is one platform that can be very helpful for people. And again, it's kind of the populations you're talking about, you know, shyer people, maybe uh, people on the autism spectrum uh, and such, to get engaged in a therapeutic setting, kind of use that as a way of, projecting some of their real-life issues, you know, get some needs met through the game uh, that they're not getting met in real life. And, uh, yeah, so I mean, there, there's actually a fairly consistent body of evidence that suggests that, contrary to what was thought in the 80s, that actually uh, the D&D playing can be very useful as a therapeutic um, milieu, if you will, to kind of, like, address other issues that a person may be having, uh, you know, including trauma. And I think the other thing, too, is, is you know, just like video games, we, we, you know, one thing that's happened over the last few years is, of course, that fifth edition has really just taken off. I mean, it soared in popularity. And I think like video games, it really, you know, I hate, I hate to talk about anybody benefiting from COVID-19, but I mean, I think you know, D&D did kind of benefit from COVID-19 yeah. in the sense that you can play it online, of course. And uh, it is a really good way to, you know, socialize with people, whether it's in real, real life on you know, tabletop or if you're doing it through some sort of online uh, forum and uh, you know so I think people could get together and game online a lot during the pandemic when they were social distancing um, and stuff so um, yeah I definitely think there are are some you know uh, clear you know advantages uh, you know to being able to play I, I could certainly say you know from my own personal experience I find D&D playing to be an incredible stress reducing you know um, hobby uh, so I play probably a couple times a week wow. I always look forward to it and it always kind of takes me away not that I can't say I'm a coal miner or anything. You know, I'm not living a terribly stressful life <laughs> as an academic, but you know, <laughs> but but what, but what stresses you know we do experience. It is kind of nice to have this, uh, you know, this, this outlet a little bit. But uh, you know, like everything else, you know, sometimes you get you know back and forth. I mean, I will say on the other hand, I mean, the one one disappointment from uh, from my study there is I did look at anxiety uh, as one uh, outcome. So the good news was that playing D and D was not associated with racism. That's fantastic. Uh, probably not a surprise to most players, but nonetheless, it's good to have the data. Um, but on the other hand, it wasn't associated with anxiety either. Um, so I was kind of expecting slash hoping to see that there would have been a uh, association with reduced anxiety, but I didn't see it, you know, necessarily. Um, so and it may just be that you know the gains in terms of reducing anxiety may be fairly short term. You know that you feel better that night, but it doesn't really like you know. Uh, fix all your problems necessarily and in that sense it might be more similar to television Um, you know it's just a distraction um, in the short term do you go ahead I think it's also is dependent on the type of gameplay because we've had situations where people are getting frustrated because nothing's getting done or you know there's a certain problem that we're not able to fix and it's similar with video games I mean I played Dark Souls and Rocket League. Those are not stress-reducing games yeah. at all. They are very stressful, but it, it's the enjoyment of that type of stress. Um, 
in the long term might help with the anxiety reducing levels. And it was actually something in your paper that I was interested to see uh, whether there was any uh, kind of uh, causation or correlation that could be found. And uh, just like you, I'm surprised nothing, <laughs> nothing showed up. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think you, you kind of hit on the head. I mean, it sort of depends on the kind of game people are playing. Like, I actually am running a game right now that's, that's pretty intense. You know, I, I'd say it's an R-rated game. Not, not to be gratuitous about it, but I think, yeah, the content is pretty, pretty intense. Not for kids. You know, and there's a lot of stressful moments. I try to give the players a lot of real hard choices to make. And some of those choices may be, you know, they're lose-lose choices, you know, so they may not be exactly stress-reducing, <laughs> you know, types of choices. I think they're great narratively. At least I like to think they're great narratively. It's my game. Uh, but, uh, you know, but hopefully the players feel the same way. Uh, but maybe it's not exactly stress-reducing. Maybe it's more, you know, sort of like watching, uh, you know, a horror movie. You know, you don't come out of it. You have fun, but it's not exactly stress-reducing, <laughs> you know, perhaps. Uh, but I think it really does depend on the different types of game, you know. So, I mean, I play in another game that's actually pretty mellow. It's pretty, uh, you know, I don't think any of the PCs are terribly likely to die, you know. So I think the stress isn't really there necessarily. And that might be a bit more relaxing and anxiety-reducing than a more intense game where you never know what's going to happen. Now, as a DM or a player, do you think it's a, it's beneficial to put players in those stressful situations like that to make them like feel like they've got a that there's something going on? Yeah, I think it's it's going to be a you know individual you know choice you know sort of situation. So with the players I got now, you know they they're mostly people I played with for you know like I said a decade and a half, uh, maybe more at this point. Uh, yeah, I, I just you know, gave them a warning. <laughs> this is the type of game this is going to be. Uh, I think that's fair to do, you know, kind of say this one might be a bit more intense than some other games. You know, you, your character may not come out looking uh, as healthy as they did going into the game, assuming they survive it. <laughs> um, and uh, some of the choices are just going to be icky, you know, that you really are, you know, it's like the, what is it? I forget the name of it. The uh, the moral dilemma where the train is going down the tracks. Oh, yeah, oh, the, the trolley, the yeah. trolley experience. The trolley, thing. yeah, it's like that kind of thing. I mean, either outcome is bad. It's just you have to, like, take which one is least bad yeah uh, or try big, to guess which big one trolley experiment bad. dm myself i like to to torture my players a little bit with <laughs> can confirm <laughs> yep yeah i think it's if you're going for the you know again i think narratively that stuff can work but it may be a bit more stressful you know to experience in the time for, but and other people don't want that you know other people will just do really want the you know, we're just going to kind of uh, take it easy, kill some bad guys. We'll always be on the side of right, you know, and uh, we'll know that unless we do something terribly stupid that everything will kind of turn out all right. And that's, a, that's fine, too. You know, that's a perfectly uh, legitimate type of game. Um, so, you know, I think it's whatever the player needs or wants in that particular moment. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm all for, like, giving people a little bit of a heads up about what's coming. Uh, I think, you know, some of the stuff, like, the contracts I think that have been going around recently are maybe going a little too far. Um, mm -hmm. it, it turns out trigger warnings tend to backfire. That's, that's another little tidbit of information. So I'm a little bit wary about going too far into trigger warnings and stuff like that. Um, but, uh, but other than that, you know, as long as the players are matched to the game um, in terms of what they want, what they're hoping to get from it, I think it's all a lot of fun, even if it isn't necessarily stress-reducing. It's a, it's a thing that we keep repeating here on the podcast is zero sessions are important to get that information across because yeah. if you're at the wrong table in the wrong game, you're not going to have a good time. You're just yeah. not going to. I Yeah, I fully agree. I Professor, so we're talking – it's great because you're a psychology professor, and there's a lot of psychology that goes on with this game. You know, we have uh, events that break characters mentally, break the players 
mentally. <laughs> uh, the the famous one uh, in this podcast case is the time I had a paladin. He was a, a lawful good. He was a re- redemption paladin. He had done something so bad he was trying to re- redeem himself. So he was being nonviolent, cast sanctuary on himself, walked all the way up a tower, looked like a Leroy Jenkins from World of Warcraft, all the way up the <laughs> tower, did not, uh, no damage, no nothing, got ready to walk down, knocked one dude, fell down the stairs, broke his neck, and it led into this whole adage. I was, I was, I was heartbroken. This character didn't yeah. want to hurt anybody. Uh, is there? How do you feel about those kind of moments? Can you explain, kind of maybe, a, if there's a, oh man, I don't know how where I want to go with this question because it, it's such a. Ah, deep personal connection to the character mm-hmm. that you feel their pain <laughs> when they. Yeah, yeah. Do you have? Well, any... yeah. It's um. So I, I mean, I had a similar experience. You know, actually, in fourth edition, I I played for a long time uh, a uh, female sorceress uh, who actually named after my wife, uh, just to add to the personal connection. Um, but I played her for years, and then at some point. Uh, she actually made the choice essentially to sacrifice herself for sort of like the greater good, if you will, you know, for you know, save creation or something of that sort. And uh, it was it was a player decision. I mean, I kind of I didn't have to do it, uh, you know, but it seemed like the sort of thing she would do um, in that particular moment. Um, and uh, so she died, and I had nightmares. <laughs> I'm sort of embarrassed. <laughs> oh man, to say it, you know, not necessarily like you know like wake up sweating nightmares but yeah i dreamed about it you know for at least you know days afterward that was sort of embarrassed um a little bit about about that but yeah you you develop these kind of we call them parasocial relationships you know with uh these characters i mean again people come to the game and do different things you know some people don't necessarily want to form these strong connections with their characters and that's fine there's nothing wrong with that and other people do you know they become like you know uh, either extensions of ourselves or we pull from friends or family members to sort of influence how we d- develop. Or oh, they're totally different and they, you know, are some sort of uh, icon of what we think goodness looks like or, or, or whatever else. But yeah, we do, you know, there is a potential for many players, not all players, but to, to form these kinds of parasocial relationships with these characters. And uh, yeah, it can be upsetting <laughs> when they die, just like, you know, hopefully not quite like a real loved one died necessarily, but uh, you know, in terms of feeling a little bit of grief uh, after that happens, uh, yeah, it's actually fairly normal. Uh, and of course it's also what makes the game meaningful. Um, just like, uh, you know, I've heard people make the argument at least that uh you know, death is part of what makes life meaningful, you know, in a way that mm-hmm. it makes it valuable. Um, and so I think, you know, you know, death and Dungeons and Dragons is part of what makes, uh, you know, our connections with our characters uh, more poignant. Yeah, um, you've, you know, you've given a me a new term for how I DM because I'm a facilitator of parasocial relations. <laughs> 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 that almost that, sounds that like a... The whole goal every time I DM is I want my players to form that connection with their, their this made-up character so that, they, that I can make them feel something, whether it's good, yeah. bad, indifferent. But we're, if, if, if we've succeeded, I mean, that's the... the the storyteller who has never written anything in me, I guess. I want mm-hmm. them to experience that and feel that connection, and 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 it's kind of like what you why people watch dramas and and uh, comedies, and you know, because the the goal is to to get them to feel something as a result of the movie. That's that's what I think the the goal as a DM should be for the players is to get them to feel yeah. that emotional connection. And sometimes sometimes they're not good. Sometimes bad stuff, you know. Um, I, 
I know uh, there's plenty of uh, the, those tearjerker movies out there that there's they have big audiences that love those movies where you go in and they come out crying. It's like, mm-hmm. why, why are you going to a movie to make you cry? <laughs> you <know>? Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll go watch a, a you know a superhero movie and, and and get in that you know or a comedy and, but and I laugh. Love, but, but I love you three thousand. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I know. I'm just I. I have a question for you too on that. Is it, is it healthy to have these these uh, kind of relationships with these characters? Yeah, it's, it's nothing inherently wrong with it. I mean, yeah, like like anything else, they could maybe go a little too far for for some people. If it becomes obsessive or if it's <laughs> causing more anxiety than it is good. Um, you know, people people do it though for a lot of reasons. Sometimes it's just fun. Um, sometimes it really is these parasocial relationships are kind of sitting in place of real ones that are missing in a person's life, um, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. You know, at least, you know, it's a fairly positive, uh, you know, defense mechanism, if you will, although it's the problem is more that they don't have the real life relationships, not that they're creating a parasocial relationship. <laughs> um, so it's not necessarily inherently bad. Like I said, unless it's becoming quasi delusional or something of uh, like, they think the person really lives or, or something of that sense. Uh, I mean, I think where people get tripped up with them a little bit, uh, this is where I think like comic, I've seen this happen with comic books a lot more recently. I don't really, I don't really follow comic books. I've never been into them terribly. So I've no dog in these fights, but you know, every so often you'll see, you know, the uh, a, a comic book will take a, a pre-existing character and change them, you know, in a significant way. Typically, by changing some aspects of their identity, you know. So a lot of it, of course, is becoming more progressive. So they may take, you know, I, I think the one I recently heard that I didn't follow that closely, so I hope I'm not mangling it. But you know, I think there's some version of Superman that now they made him, you know, bisexual. Yeah, it's his uh, Superboy. Yeah, it's his son. It's uh, nah, Jor-El's not the name of his son, but it's his son. That's uh, they did it. A lot of it's it's come out now that they kind of did that because they knew it was going to draw a lot of media attention. Uh, And now that the comic's not selling any well, it's everybody else's fault. That's (laughs) it. That's what happens with these. Is people then say, "Well, these the, all these fans are hating it because they're you know uh, they're bigoted." Yeah, or whatever. Insert, but you, insert general uh, insult yeah. here. Uh, yeah, but oftentimes what happens is you just you, you know they have this relationship with this character and you just changed it on them. You know, and that's what's you know, oftentimes provoking the anxiety. I mean, I'm not going to say there's obviously there's no bigotry in in you know in the fandom. There there is, but. You know, oftentimes the interpretation of what's happening is the least generous possible interpretation when there there may be some complexities in there. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, one of the more recent ones I'm I'm privy to was when they uh, uh, scripted the flip and made Captain America a Hydra agent. That mm. pissed off a lot of people, and so bad that they had to retcon it. I think three issues later. Yeah, it was something, yeah. It was something ridiculous, but. Uh, changing these characters now what what happens if uh let's say a character experiences this change in the game but the player like i i'm trying the the question's there but it's not coming out in my head but it's something to do with how the player uh adjusts to these changes uh good or bad let's say a player has a bad reaction to a great change uh, to a change in there let's say we'll go we'll use the example of falling down the, the guy falling down the stairs yeah. um is there something that people should be worried about with these kind of changes yeah, I mean, as DM, I've, I've always been reluctant myself to make, you know, I mean, on one hand, death is death. He didn't really necessarily change the character with the death. You know, uh, there's a normal grieving process that may happen there, uh, and that may suck for the player. But 
I, I tend to worry about that less than, you know, when you do something that fundamentally changes the character's nature, like changing their alignment. Uh, or the good old-fashioned, you know, first edition, what was it? The, uh, there was some sort of belt of, like, gender reassignment or something like that. The of femininity. <laughs> yeah, that one yeah, there. Yeah. You know, so it's, 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 there's nothing wrong, you know, with, uh, you know, if people want to do, you know, have a trans character, non-binary, that's totally cool. You know, uh, but if you take, you know, a character's identity and you change it significantly, that really can change that player's relationship with that character. Uh, so even something like alignment, you have a good character, change him to an evil character. I mean, that, you know, if you work that out with the player in advance and that's part of like a narrative arc that you're planning, that could be kind of cool. Um, but if you're just sort of surprising the, char- the player with that change to the character or, you know, oftentimes, particularly in the old Gary Gygax, you know, Modules that it just sort of happened. You touch the wrong thing, and voila, you're either a you know pool of green slime or you're evil or something. Yeah, it's it's the, um, the t- corruption of the One Ring legacy. Yeah, uh, you know, you get the magic. I I've I've had it happen to characters of my a broken who was actually in the same campaign. Bolg was comes from. Uh, yeah. you know, had a cursed sword that uh, you know if he ever when every time he critted with it, his alignment would go one shade darker, mm. one shade mm-hmm. more evil. Um, you know, and in that ca- that campaign, you were a crit machine, so yeah. it was yeah, and it, you know, it got to the point where he's sacrificing children to get warlock powers because he was yeah, you know, he went from being the hero of the campaign to being a villain for a little while, and yeah, and then you had to go through a whole redemption arc to get him back to being a good guy again. Yeah, which, yeah, you know, I could see where if you know if somebody who's not I I personally enjoyed the rede- having to go through the redemption arc and yeah, you know. I mean, I, I in some of our downtime, I made sure he is, lost all his money and and is became owning a, a brothel is a redemption. <laughs> yes, yes, owning a, rede- a brothel is a redemption arc. <laughs> some, some but, of them, oh, go ahead. Yeah, oh, I'm sorry. so he, you know, I I worked with the DM and and you know made sure he lost all his money on the downtime and and went through this whole soul searching thing to start bringing him back to the you know away from the darkness. And of course, they separated and destroyed the evil sword so that it would stop influencing. It. Right. But uh, you know, it's one of those things. If, if if the character's not prepared for that kind of, uh, you know, a change, I could see where that. Uh, I've done it to players in my own campaigns where, like, I was, sure. used the, the staircase example, where you know the paladin has suddenly, you know, lost his oath of passivity and mm-hmm. loses his paladin abilities because, you know, he murdered somebody by knocking him down the stairs. The All- stairs murdered him. Yeah. I didn't murder yeah. him. Yeah, it, that, that, <laughs> that's what happened in the camp. I'm using it as an example now. <laughs> so <laughs> if, if you know, he loses his paladin powers because of that action where the DM, well, you didn't have to have him fall down the stairs. I mean, you know, <laughs> you can, does the player want to keep playing that character when he's not a yeah. paladin anymore? I mean... So it, it's one of those things where I I can see, especially people who are attached, um, to the yeah. you know to their characters where it could be difficult to to deal with change. I want to talk about uh, you got some bolt. I'm sorry. Oh, um, just the uh, the whole orcs uh, our orcs racist. The the whole premise behind this was always interesting to me because well, Bolg is an orc from from the outset. He was chaotic neutral. 
Actually, it was chaotic mm-hmm. stupid, but that's <laughs> completely. He had a six intelligence. Morality was not on his radar at all. He it went was, to Florida. He went to Florida public schools. He went by his whims. He was technically a cannibal. I don't. I don't. He didn't eat orc, but he ate other races. If the meat was there, he ate it. Mm-hmm. And he became a chef because, well, he found a chef hat and he didn't have anything doing his downtime. Bam! There you go. Now you have. You know, chunks <laughs> of elf meat in the trencher of rye, you know. Uh, but I never played him in a culturally insensitive way or a racist way. It was always just he follows his whim in the way that um, in the old editions, Grumsh was the, the big orc god, the way that Grumsh would want him to do, which was go into battle, be strong, not necessarily want to do evil things, but just do the way the orc way, which it, the uh, description that's in the um, monster menu that you actually have here in the paper always seemed more to me the way the English would describe Vikings, mm-hmm. and not racist in any sort of way. Just, just like, oh, these barbaric people. This is how they are. Yeah. So, and that was my my big dog in the fight, but then. I- <laughs> so yeah we talked we talked about races uh you know are they racist inherently i think uh you guys have made some really good arguments but what about classes something that we don't honestly think a whole lot about sometimes you know are certain classes inherently evil and w- maybe what's the psychology behind that because think about it, warlocks when you're doing warlock stuff uh my favorite warlocks to pick on are the world of warcraft warlocks because mm-hmm. they're dealing with fell magic which has a long history in the world of warcraft of being just generally bad. Are there classes that are inherently evil, or, or is that something maybe we're looking too deep into? What do you think about that, Professor? Yeah, well, I think the the key one probably historically has been the assassin, you know, class or subclass, um, which you know it's sort of hard to roll that into a lawful good <laughs> kind of alignment. You know, I guess you kind of think, well, maybe like the James Bond, you know, sort of archetype that that would sort of make sense if you kind of think of it as a of the mechanics of the class as opposed to the the flavor of the class you could sort of make it fit you know somewhere um if you have a but, license uh, to kill it's legal <laughs> yeah <laughs> you get a license you know so it's okay uh i guess you know, probably even bond would be more of a lawful neutral than a lawful good necessarily but uh um yeah i mean i think the you know, same thing with the warlock but i think what you see is then uh Players like the mechanics of the classes, Warlock being a classic example of this, and so they want good variants of it. You know, so even though the initial gist of the Warlock class back in I think third edition when it first started coming up was the sense of you're making this kind of like dark pact with some you know questionable authority. They didn't have, I don't think they had to be evil, but they always were kind of like you know obscure and eldritch and you know. Uh, so neutral evil, you know, we're maybe neutrals as far as you would get. But, yeah, then you, you get people who want to play them, um, you know, as good. And I don't necessarily mind that flexibility. Uh, like I said, maybe with some classes like the Assassin, it's a little bit of a stretch to think of a, <laughs> of like a, a lawful good um, but I Assassin. Kill, just <laughs> but I, ki- I, I kill all the bad people. It's, it's that, that, that uh, yeah. Well, and then you get like all, the, all the religious classes could be... Uh, problematic especially if you're playing in you know a, a very re- certain religious groups that would take the fact that yeah. you are you know playing a priest of a non-judeo-christian god 
<laughs> so there, yeah. there are people out there that would be offended by that at their you know at their tables their paladins are all templars and and their clerics are all you know following the the monotheistic christian mm-hmm. uh thing so that that i mean part of that comes with knowing your table too um but i i, I mean it, some people would have issues with that as well i mean it's, yeah and that that may be where some of the whole satanic panic stuff from the the 80s um but I mean, it's a game. It's, it's yeah. not yeah. real. Yeah, <laughs> that that's one of the biggest points of contention. This is a game. It's I I had a uh, older lady at, at my job. I'm a pharmacy tech, who saw I had a uh, lapel pen of uh, it's a D and D lapel pen, a D twenty, and it says adventure. Wait, she's like, you're playing that satanic game. You're a satanist. <laughs> I'm like, no, ma'am. I play it to enjoy my time, and it's a game usually about good overcoming evil. Mm-hmm. And, so what about that is satanic? And she had no response. And, yeah, it's just it, any class has the potential to be good. Any class has the potential to be evil. The one that's the hardest for me to justify is necromancy. But even then, you could theoretically come up with a reason why they're doing it for good I'm reasons. bringing my loved ones back to life. I don't yeah. want to be alone. Haley Joe Osmond from The Sixth Sense is technically a ne- necromancer. Yeah, <laughs> I think you could make the argument like a Van Helsing character. Yeah, yeah it was you know uh, mastering the dark arts in order to destroy undead, as opposed to yeah. summon them and control them. Somebody, somebody who's putting spirits to rest and and you know fulfilling their last tasks would technically be a necromancer. Yeah, I mean, uh, even in my my world, I have the College of Spirits Bard, which that's entirely their thing, is they put them to rest before necromancers can get their hands on them for mm-hmm. nefarious purposes. Yeah. Oh. Professor, what because what, we're coming towards the end of this, and I, I really want people to get to know you. We're talking with Professor Chris Ferguson. We're going to be plugging him quite a bit on for the rest of this episode for sure. Uh, he is a professor at Stetson University. He's here in Deland, Florida. It's a great one. You can find him on Twitter. I don't think I actually threw that out at the beginning. It's CJ Ferguson 1111 uh, on Twitter. Tweet him out. He's a really good dude. He has a couple books out there. Moral Combat, Why the War on Video Games is Wrong, and How Madness Shaped History. He's been an awesome guest. He's been talking to us about the psychology of the game. It's the biggest to- one of the biggest topics affecting the D&D game right now is our orcs races. And I want to make sure you have any final arguments that you have to let people know what you truly believe on this topic. Professor, the floor is yours. Yeah, well, thanks. Yeah, I appreciate it. Well, I mean, I think, you know, again, what I'm seeing in these, like, social media spaces like Twitter, which is really a, a and now that you told me people to follow me, is really a dark pit of despair, but <laughs> you know, yeah, it, it really is what is. it is. But I, I mean, I see a lot of people, I, I actually watch, like, two people on either side of this debate, you know, a traditionalist and a progressive, like, both talk about gatekeeping. And so the idea, like, you know, we're the gatekeepers now, you can't play in the game anymore. And both, again, uh, you know, I know people hate both sides of ism, but as I <laughs> say sometimes, both sides hate both sides of ism. But really, both sides were engaging in the sort of same same behavior. What I, what I really like to see, I mean, in terms of, like, if anybody from Wizards of the Coast or Paizo is listening to this, I mean, I think that the healthy message for a uh, healthy plan to go forward with this is not that one side wins or not that the other side wins, not that we leave things exactly the same or that we, you know, make Dungeons and Dragons into something like adventuring through a college university dorm, you know, uh, <laughs> but rather that, you know, we find some ways to get people from both sides to 
get together and compromise, you know, on some of these things. Like, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, maybe getting rid of the word race and using species instead. Or I don't know. There, there may be some reasonable compromises that everybody can agree on that, you know, maybe people get 60 to 70 percent of what they want, but they don't get everything what they want. But everybody kind of feels like they've been listened to. I mean, I think that's the road forward uh, for these role-playing games. You know, I think the risk now is that, either Wizards or Paizo or any of these other companies are going to shift too far to one side or the other, and they're going to lose audience um, as a consequence of that. So, I mean, my hope is that, you know, you know, some people are going to like my study, some people aren't going to like it, but my hope is that, you know, by bringing some data to this, it might be easier um, in some ways suggesting maybe the stakes aren't quite as high as people had feared uh, that it may make that easier for people to sit down work together and figure out how the next edition of the game can be fun for everybody to play, whether they're a traditionalist or a progressive, you know, rather than thinking like somebody has to lose and somebody has to win. You know, at least that's my hope. Um, you know, we'll see what, what comes of this. Go ahead, Bog. Um, so one of the questions I have for you is actually it, in your paper, you um, gave, gave uh, your thoughts on the data, and then you said this observation, of course, applies only to the specific context examined here, and more research is needed across other play modalities, particularly using pre-registered studies. If you could do a pre-registered study on any video game, what would you want to do for this, this type of thing? Um, I, in big letters underneath it, I wrote The Elder Scrolls because race <laughs> in The Elder Scrolls is insane. Huge. It is insane. Yeah. There. Uh, not it, it's just i'm just presenting the data as it is there is a race of just black people yeah called the red guard and in game in the lore they're part of a greater subset of humans but in yeah. in the play modality it's it you get to choose being a black person which to me is insane but yeah. also i mean if they have differing uh abilities and stats then that may make sense Right, right, yeah. Well, one of the things we're doing right now with race and video games in our lab is we're actually having um, people come in and, and play the old uh, Resident Evil games. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you may remember, Resident Evil 5 got some criticism for its depictions of, of race in the game. There's a lot of back and forth about um, whether it was racist or not. Um, but you know, what we're kind of trying to do is very bluntly see you know, if you play Resident Evil and the zombies you're shooting are black as opposed to the zombies you're shooting are white, does that carry over into any aggression um, in real life? Now, we can't have people knife each other in the lab or anything like that. <laughs> you know, as, much, as much fun as that would be. Uh, but, you know, we, the, the aggression is very mild. It's sort of like putting someone's hand in a bucket of ice water or something like that. So it's you know, not gang violence or anything. But, um, you know, so we're kind of testing some of that sort of like race and video games, you know, that way. I, I think, yeah, it'd be, it'd be pretty interesting to look at a game like Elder Scrolls, you know, which, again, would require a much longer investment. You know, it's harder to play Elder Scrolls in 30 minutes mm -hmm. than um, Resident Evil. But uh, I, th I think it would be interesting to look at, you know, some of these, you know, these types of issues and how people respond to Sort of, like you said, like yeah, you know, if you uh, are playing a character, this is the you know the black race and this is the white race, and is that kind of weird <laughs> for, yeah, for yeah. people? You know. <laughs> oh man, that soundbite's not going to go over well for you. 
<laughs> hey, Professor, I want to go. I want to be the first to thank you here uh, for being on our podcast. Like I said, you're probably the biggest guest we've had so far, and we really look forward to having you again. Anytime you have any D and D papers or anything like that, we welcome you. This will always be an open platform here for you here. Uh, anything else we can ever do for you, just let us know. But that, with that being said, this will probably be closing to the end of our show. Awesome. Well, this has been a lot of fun. I appreciate you guys having me on today. It's been, it's been great. No, we appreciate having you. Thanks, Professor. Cool. Thank you, guys. Bye. Thank you. Oh, all righty, guys. With that being said, the music's playing. And you know what that means. We had Professor Chris Ferguson here on Chef Bolg and the Pirate Captain's Recipes for Everything. Make sure you guys go find him on Twitter. Read his stuff. It is amazing. It works. It's it's generally entertaining. I liked it. You guys liked it? Yeah. All right, cool. With that being said, say goodbye, Bolg. Goodbye, Bolg. And bye, Loke. See ya. We appreciate you listening to Chef Bolg and the Pirate Captain's Recipes for Everything. Featuring Loke the Bard, of course. Make sure you go find us on Facebook to see what old concoctions Bolg is cooking up in the kitchen. And if you want your emails read, then email us at bolgandpc at gmail.com. And as always, happy adventures. Yarrr.